when I was in junior high, is when I remember it, if it may have been before then, but I was unaware, uh, the, the phrase, what would Jesus do, became really popular. It was on t-shirts and license plates and hats and bracelets everywhere and keychains. I even remember and have a CD that they made with that title that was a bunch of songs and in the little case that the CD came in, there was a nice little neon bracelet that said, what would Jesus do? And it was a really popular question. And I say that because there's a picture that I've seen on Facebook that every time I see it related to this question, it makes me laugh. I hope it makes you laugh um, because I thought it'd be good to laugh a little bit. So this is it. It says, if anyone ever asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with the whip is within the realm of possibilities. And that just makes me laugh. Because often when the question is used, it's used in this timid way. You need to be timid and mild and all of this. But there is that reality that part of Jesus' ministry that is recorded in all four Gospels some even think that it happened two different times, was an instance in which he flipped tables, chased people, and was chasing them with a homemade whip. Not only did he, he didn't just pick up a whip that was there, he made the whip and began chasing them with it. So if anyone ever asks you this question, just remember this is always a possibility. I, I say that because this does have a direct connection with what we're looking at today. Because what is interesting to me is what it is that prompts Jesus to this extreme. Because if you were to come into church on a Sunday morning and somebody was to start flipping tables and chasing people with a whip, we wouldn't think that that was very Christ-like. Probably because you'd be yelling at them for running in church Jesus might have. But we wouldn't think that's very Jesus-like because that's not how we treat people. That doesn't show love. But what is interesting to me, if you look at Mark 11, I'm focusing in on this one particularly, um, but the, the synoptics, those gospels that are the same, synonymous is the same, synoptic is the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to have a lot of the same things. John's gospel is not one of the synoptics. His is different. But there are a lot of overlap. But Mark adds this little phrase at the end that is more of a direct quote from Isaiah where we read this morning. But if you would, it's Mark eleven fifteen through 17, page 847 in the Pew Bibles if you want to look this up. Because it intrigues me what it is that prompts Jesus to do this because it's not what we think it is. It's not what tradition and the evangelical church has told us it is. See, we have a tradition that says it's one thing and it has to do with selling things in the church. But I don't think that that's what it is that Jesus is upset about. Mark eleven fifteen through 17. And they came to Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, back when we were getting ready for Christmas and we were looking at Advent, we looked at John's gospel account of this, which John places at the beginning of the gospel, which many take to indicate that it was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Some argue that it was later and that it's all one account, but there are some stark, some stark di- differences between them that I tend to believe that Jesus began his ministry and ended his ministry with both of these same actions. But notice, the reason I say I don't think that the money is the root of the issue is because what Jesus says. I think the money is the symptom. Just like if you have an infection in your leg, that infection is really the symptom if you have a splinter deep down inside. The splinter is the issue. It's presenting itself as an infection. And I think the money was being presented that way because the issue, I think, for Jesus is this idea of prayer. Because what he says is, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And and the issue wasn't just that they were selling things because that was often done and it was allowed and we unpacked that a lot back at Christmas time. It, It was written into the law so that it could be done so people that were traveling long distances to worship wouldn't have to worry about hurting their sacrificial animal. They could sell it and then they could come buy one. It was written in. The issue was that they were ripping people off. And the deeper issue than that is we all know that when we are upset or there is something, there's tension between us with people especially that we're trying to worship with, it gets in the way of prayer. The next time you and a close friend or you and your spouse or however that works out are having a fight, try to pray with them. See how well that works. It gets in the way of prayer. The reason I picked Mark is Mark is the one that that includes this whole phrase that we saw in Isaiah. I read Isaiah 56 this morning on purpose because we see that it is very intentional about God reaching out to people, not just the Jews, the Israelites. And Mark includes Jesus saying, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, not just these people that we think are chosen. And so we often hear this as a command against selling anything in the church building. Notice, though, when we do that, we're condemning the sellers. But Jesus chased out those who were selling and buying. So when you buy things in church, you're just as guilty as those who sell things in church, if that is the way you want to understand this. But ultimately, I think Jesus was angry because prayer was being hindered. And I meant to have this question on the screen and I missed it. But I think that if Jesus was angry that prayer was being hindered, we must ask ourselves, what do we do that hinders prayer? What is it that we do individually? What is it what we do as a family? What is it that we do as a congregation that hinders prayer for others? And there are a lot of possible answers that could be pushed out for that. But this morning we're starting this study that's just going to take a few weeks leading us up to at the park in August 
on, called house of prayer, to get this idea that God wants his people to be a house of prayer. It was prompted by several things for me. Uh, we're going to have a prayer focus as we do this, but there's also going to be some practice. Uh, at the National Day of Prayer at the courthouse last year, as the Ministerial Association was meeting and planning it, they said, why is it that every year we have someone come sing, we have someone come preach, and then people stand up and pray and everybody just stands and listens? If it's a day of prayer, why don't we actually get people to pray? And so we can talk about prayer all day long. I could stand up here for hours talking about prayer, but if you don't pray, it doesn't do any good. And so I want to try to encourage some prayer as we do this and make it highly practical. And the reason for that is, back in May, I went to a, a one-day retreat with uh, Ben Merrill. Some of you have said you've recognized his name. He was a minister in the Danville area, had a radio show and a TV show long, long ago in a universe far, far away. Um, and then he went to Sullivan. He went to California. After being at a church in California, he retired at 65 or 70 and came to St. Louis and went to a church of 75 to 100, I believe, and retired from there after 20 years in ministry when they were somewhere in the thousands of thousands. He knows what it takes to grow a church. But he made this statement that I have not been able to get out of my mind since he said it. He said, we, sorry, we don't have prayer meetings in restoration movement churches. That'd be the Christian churches, churches of Christ. We have prayer request meetings followed by a short prayer. We don't have prayer meetings in restoration movement churches. We have prayer request meetings followed by a short prayer. Think of Think about it. When was the last time that you were at a Christian church, Church of Christ, Restoration Movement Church prayer meeting? I can think of two in the past 10 years that I've been at. And how many people, when you were there, were willing to pray out loud with other people? How many people had complaints about it? Because one of the things that I've seen in many prayer meetings through all the years that I've seen prayer meetings is part of what we don't like about them is they're too long. And I think sometimes those complaints are some of the things that we do that hinder prayer. As Christians, we are called to promote and practice bold, faith-filled, consistent prayer. We are called to promote that and to practice it. Bold, faith-filled, consistent prayer. But if we're going to promote and to practice this type of prayer, we have to know what it is that we should be praying about or that which we should be praying. So we're going to look at James for a moment. It's in James chapter 5. Verses, we're going to start in verse 13. It's page 1013 in your pew Bibles if you want to turn there. I think that James is a fantastic book because it is so straightforward. It is not hard at all to understand what James is saying. That being said, James is a difficult and frustrating book because it is so straightforward. The same thing that makes it a fantastic book to study is the same thing that makes it a very difficult book to study because you can't read it and get out of what he says. 
Just like kids, we've all seen those kids that they know what they're supposed to do, they know what their parents said, and so you tell a sibling, don't do this. Five minutes later, one of their other siblings does it. You say, why are you doing that? Well, you didn't tell me not to do it, right? But that's how we act. We look at Scripture and say, well, I'm not sure, so I think it's okay for me. Maybe what he really meant was this. Maybe he didn't really mean turn the other cheek. Maybe what he meant was annihilate them and let God sort them out. Maybe he didn't really mean that our enemies aren't flesh and blood because how could these people not be our enemies? But with James, there's no getting around what he says. And it makes it really frustrating because it's so difficult to apply because it's tough. So that being said, let's read James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Doesn't sound like there's any skirting around this. James is pretty straightforward. I want to work backwards a little bit through this to get to the application. Uh, But I, I want to start with another thing that Ben Merrill said that day that has troubled me. He says this, he says, the trouble today is that we are shocked when God answers prayer because we lack faith. Think about how many times we are shocked to see God answer prayer. Because deep down inside, we often don't expect it. How many times have we stood by somebody's bed and prayed that God would heal them, but deep down inside, we know that there's really no hope. And we often feel guilty asking that prayer because we fear, we think, we lack the faith to believe that it's really going to happen. Which doesn't much sound like the prayer of faith that James tells us to offer. Because I think the prayer of faith means you have faith that what you're asking is going to happen. I think lack of faith hinders prayer. What do we do that hinders prayer? Our lack of faith hinders prayer. The argument can be had, as with Peter's sinking, is it that we lack faith in ourselves or do we lack faith in God? Do we lack faith that what we do can really affect change? Or do we lack faith that God really cares or God really answers or God really exists? Ultimately, it doesn't matter because the faith is lacking. I think part of the problem, I'm going out on a limb here, I think part of the problem with Restoration Movement churches is we have been convinced that when the New Testament was complete, the Holy Spirit quit working miraculously, and there is no point. 
Now, I am not talking about the apostolic succession of spiritual giftedness and speaking in tongues and all of that. I'm saying that it was never those people doing those things. It was always God working through them. And if you think that God can't work through you, then you are lacking faith to have prayer answered. The same Holy Spirit that worked through them and raised Lazarus from the dead and raised Jesus from the dead and raised Dorcas from the dead is the same Holy Spirit that Jesus says will live in you when you believe in him. And that is why prayer is powerful and effective. No matter whether we think the Peter or us are lacking faith in themselves or faith in God, it has the same consequence. But also, either way, we learn a lesson from Elijah. That's what James is saying. Elijah was a man just like us. In fact, Elijah had less power than us. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit wasn't living in him constantly. Because remember what Jesus says, unless I leave the helper, the Holy Spirit can't come to you. So in reality, Elijah should have less power than us because he was not constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon him and give him strength for things. But it was not a constant dwelling within him. That is why your body is a temple of God because God lives in you through the Holy Spirit. And so if Elijah, a man like us, really with less power than us, could do these great things through his faith, we too can do great things through our faith-filled prayer because in prayer you have direct contact with the creator of the universe. If you believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And if you believe that in prayer you are talking to God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, then there is no reason for you to lack faith when you pray, because if God created them, God can change them, and God can intervene in ways that are different from natural law, like parting waters, like making axe heads float, manna, dead people coming back, all of those things. Our lack of faith hinders our prayer. Also, unrighteousness hinders prayer. I think one of the other reasons that we often don't see the prayers answered the way we want, did you catch what James says? The prayer of who? The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, we understand that we can't be righteous on our own that it's only through Christ. But I think that's part of walking in step with the Spirit, that sometimes the reason that our prayer is hindered is because we're not walking in step with the Spirit. We're doing what we want, and we call on God as our genie in a bottle whenever we need something, hoping that he'll come out and grant our three wishes and then go back in his bottle and not disturb our life until we need him again. I am convinced that sometimes Oftentimes, the reason we don't see fruit from our prayer is because of unconfessed, 
unrepentant, blatant sin that we choose to participate in. A hard-heartedness toward God and his desires. Justifying the sin that we do. Excusing our behavior that we clearly see in Scripture is wrong. I know I'm called to fill in the blank, but you just don't understand. God doesn't understand my circumstance. He's never been there. So, four things that we see in James that we should pray for. First, he says the suffering. Are any of you suffering? You should pray. Then he says the cheerful. Are any of you cheerful? You should sing songs of praise to God. Are any of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to come and pray for you, anointing you with oil. I remember the first time I ever saw that done in church, or the first time that I remember seeing it done in church, it took probably longer to explain what was being done than the action itself, because it is so rare in our prayer meetingless churches that we have to explain that it's not craziness, it's not Catholic, it's not Pentecostal, it's biblical. But we never do it, or we rarely do it. Sometimes when we're really sick, we don't want anybody to know because we just want to deal with it ourselves. And then sin and repentance. Notice again the command here. Confess your sins to who? Anybody remember? It doesn't say confess your sins to God only. Confess your sins to one another. I think this is one of those things where our Protestant evangelical churches miss out when we shoved away from Catholicism. And we said, we're not Catholic. I don't need to confess my sins to a priest. Who's a priest to forgive me? Well, the priest isn't the one that forgives. And I'm not saying that I agree with the Catholic Catholic view of penance and Hail Marys and all of these things. But what I do believe is there is great power when we have somebody that we trust in, that we confess our sins to, and they remind us, John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you. Let me pray for you. And then they continue to pray that you have strength to overcome those temptations in the future. And then after a while, you get sick of talking to somebody face to face saying, I did this again, I did this again, I did this again. And you go, the next time you're faced with that temptation, you know what, I don't want to have to tell them that I keep doing this. So you stop. But again, I don't know, maybe James doesn't really mean that we should confess to one another. Maybe he means something else. But I can't get past this statement. We don't have prayer meetings in Restoration Movement churches. We have prayer request meetings followed by a short prayer. I don't remember the last time I ever saw a church that at the end of prayer time went, you know what? We need to spend some hours in prayer because we've got two pages full of prayer requests and we've got more handed in and we've got more that people will probably say. We need to spend some serious time in prayer. What we do is we pass those up so Jimmy 
typically can pray for them for us. But we don't rally around those very often and spend deep, involved time. In fact, we often say, well, let's just let one person pray so we're not here too long. Where is the faith in that? That's not what God, we are to pray. As Christians, we are called to promote and practice bold, faith-filled prayer consistently. And so this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time working through these categories, giving a little bit of time each. I don't want to belabor it. I don't want to make you miserable. But it's silly to stand up here and talk about how we need to often practice and promote constant, faith-filled, bold prayer, and then say, see you later, without giving you some time to pray. So in your bulletins, there are prayer request sheets, prayer lists. But before we get to that, I think, again, we need to start at the back a little bit because I do believe that unrighteousness hinders prayer. And I do believe that while there is great power in confessing our sins to people that we confide in, that we don't have to tell somebody else. Now, I think if we don't do it just because, well, I don't have to, then there's some disobedience there. But if we understand that we can confess to God, he, Jesus, is our interceder, our intermediary, We can confess to God and he forgives. So before we do anything else, I want to give you some time to spend some time praying and confessing and repenting of sin. And I would recommend that before you go too far away from this morning, find somebody that you can confide in and confess with and pray with as soon as possible because there is so much power in that. Spend some time praying over sin and repenting. Lord, I, th- I think that sometimes the reason we struggle to confess our sins even to you is that we find ourselves, we know our sin, we know how corrupt we are and our pride and our arrogance and our selfishness and our greed that leads to all kinds of hosts of other sins. We know how rotten we are inside. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, we think we can hide from you and keep you from knowing that. 
May we recognize that you already know our brokenness. You knew it before we were born, and that is why you sent your son. And so we praise you and we thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son to die in our place to atone for our sins. May we confess those to you. May we not hold anything back. We thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our wrongdoing. And we put our hope and our trust in that promise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the suffering, I'm going to do prayer requests now. Some of them may be sick, and we can do that. But there are a lot of people that we know are suffering. And so uh, I'm going to go through these real quick. I'm going to write them up here as quickly as I can so that you can see them and pray for them if you would like. Uh, Melvin Lamb has a cousin on a mission trip to Tanzania. Uh, drilling water wells, and it's not going well. So uh, please, please be praying for them. Uh, <clears throat> oh, thanks. I didn't notice that. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Jeff Keeling is uh, recovering from an auto accident. John Connor is going to be having a heart bypass surgery in the fairly near future. <clears throat> uh, there are many people, Carolyn has asked for friends who are in the process, but we all know many people who are uh, going through divorce and separation and pain in that. So please pray for healing and restoration. For those who are divorced or divorcing <clears throat> and their families, their kids that have to deal with that. And then also Ann Vogel hit a deer on the way to church this morning. And she's okay, but her car is uh, damaged some. The airbag did go off, so I'm imagining she's probably going to have some pain from that later. So spend some time with these and the others on the prayer lists in your bulletin, uh, lifting these people or yourself who are suffering up to God as we pray.
Lord, there are so many people we know that are suffering. They, they're fighting uh, family issues. They are suffering from the loss of family members. They're suffering from poor choices that they see family members that they love dearly making. We know people who are suffering because they are watching loved ones reach the end and they, they hate to see that pain and all the different things and emotions that we fight there. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort through your presence and your spirit and your love. I pray that we would realize that there is so often we are called to be the ones that are your presence to those suffering people that we would mourn with those who mourn, that we would sit with those who suffer, that we wouldn't try to have answers and explain why all these things happen, that we would just sit and be present and let them know that we are there. Lord, help us to quit trying to find the right words. May we recognize that we don't always have to have something to say that being there, giving a hug, just sitting and letting people be is often all they need. When there are words needed, give us those as well. May we be able to suffer with those that suffer and be your presence and love with them. Amen. There are also some praises on this. Um, we don't get into praises as often. Um, but there are always times that we are finding things that we should, or we should be finding things to be faith, thankful for. Whether it's a lack of humidity and a little bit of a cool breeze where we can go outside and not have our breath taken away as we try to walk to our vehicle. Um, sometimes it's just in the beautiful clouds or the sunset or the creation that God has given us. Sometimes it's because we see miraculous answer to prayer. We see relationships restored. We see people healed. Or sometimes we just praise that we, have, we see loved ones that don't have to suffer anymore and we know that why we miss them, we don't mourn like those with no hope and they have their hope in Christ and that is something to be thankful for even as we mourn that loss. Spend some time bringing your praises before God.
Lord, we recognize that we have so much to be thankful for. That you give us everything that we need to breathe and eat and live from the time that you created the earth, even before you created people. Everything that was needed to sustain life was here and that you provide for us. May we open our eyes to those opportunities of thankfulness. Sometimes we just get overwhelmed. We allow ourselves to live not in your joy. We look at the circumstances and we look at the issues going on and we forget that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die. We forget that there is beauty and creation all around us and that you created that for us to enjoy and to return as glory back to you as we praise you. We, we forget where we see miracles done in lives. Yesterday, as I listened to somebody talk about their dad who had walked away from you for 40 years and their opportunity to baptize him into the name of Christ. And the rejoicing that was done when that happened. May we never give up. And may we continue to praise you for the miracles that you do. May we praise you for the life and the faith of those that we've lost. May we praise you through our mourning as we recognize that they cling to that hope that you gave them and that is something to be thankful for. Thank you for that hope. It's in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I find interesting in Scripture is <clears throat> especially when you see people prayed for, the person being prayed for's faith has no impact on the prayer. It's all about the faith of the one who prays. Because there are many people who become Christ followers because of healing that was done in their life because a Christian prayed for them. They didn't have faith until that prayer was answered. And often we... we I think we get this idea that if the person that's being prayed for doesn't have faith, then that healing won't come. But it's all in the faith of the prayer and the faithfulness of God. And so I am not going to call anybody out because that's not what I want to do. But I want to offer, if you would like, if you were fighting some sort of sickness and you would like for the elders to pray for you and anoint you with oil, we will do that. And so I'm going to give you time to pray for people who are sick. Uh, and if you are sick and you would like to have that done, I will pull the benches out if we need more than one. I'll pull the second one out and you can have a seat and we will do that. But spend some time praying for those that are sick. And if you are sick and want prayer, you can make your way up here if you would like.
Lord, we know that because you are the creator, that you have power over everything. And we've seen through history where you intervene in supernatural, miraculous ways that defy the laws of nature. And we praise you for that. I pray that we would have faith to understand that you can still do that. And often you do that through the prayers of your people. May we be faithful to this command to pray for the sick and anoint them with oil, understanding that it's still you and it's still your power that does it, but for whatever reason you've called us to do that. So just like we trust in your command to baptize, we trust in your command to anoint the sick with oil, and I pray that we would do that, that that would become something that is common among your people so that we can have bold, faith-filled prayers that bring healing to those who are sick. And may we understand as we mourn differently than those who have no hope that sometimes that healing that you bring is bringing those believers of yours into eternity so that they are no longer sick ever again and that they have the new body and the new life that won't face disease and sickness and all the issues that we see people face. Amen. There's one last thing I want to encourage us to pray for. It's at the end of James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. James writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back a sin, brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, I understand that this isn't one of those direct commands to pray, but we know people. We watch people who have walked away from the truth that they know. I have, in, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, if you remain stable and steadfast with your hope, faith in the hope of the gospel that you've heard, and we know people who haven't stayed stable and faith, uh, stable and steadfast in that faith. They've walked away often because of their own pride and arrogance and selfishness. And so spend a little bit of time praying for those people that you know that have walked away. Maybe the, the people that you think of are terrorists across the world who God wants to save. Maybe they're people that you've watched grow up in church and they've walked away. Or they've never grown up in church, but you've tried and you've tried and you've planted seeds and you've seen people plant seeds, but they haven't come to fruition. Sometimes it takes 40 years of germination before that seed will sprout. Pray that God works in their lives to bring them back to him.
God, I'm not sure, but I suspect that this may be one of the toughest prayers for us because our hearts are heavy and they hurt for those people that we know and we love so dearly to come into a relationship with you and not just to be forgiven, but to live their lives for you, to share your gospel with others. It's also difficult because we know, we know the truth of what you say, that our enemies aren't flesh and blood, that our flesh and blood is always our mission field. But sometimes we look at people and the actions that they do, and we just it's so evil that we have trouble bringing ourselves to pray that they would come to know your son. May we be reminded of Saul of Tarsus. May we find hope in his story and the stories that are countless like that of others who have persecuted your church and they have done evil, terrible things because they were living for themselves and living for Satan rather than living for Christ. May we find the ability to pray for them as well. Lord, be with those that we know. Help us to be an example in their life. Give us opportunities and help us to take advantage of those opportunities to speak truth into their lives and bring them back to you. Because we understand that all people are created in your image and that Jesus died for all people so that anybody that believes in him can have eternal life. May we understand that if there's not hope for them in Christ, there's not hope for us in Christ. We thank you for that hope that we have and that they have. And that is what we bring our prayers to you in. Amen. As Christians, we are called to promote and practice bold faith-filled, consistent prayer. We are to be a house of prayer, not just here, I don't think. I think we are to be a house of prayer wherever we're at. Your home is a little church. Your home should be a house of prayer. You should be praying with your family, not just before supper and before bed. Pray without ceasing. Take those times as you're driving and you see those sunsets to marvel at what God has provided and to thank him for that. May we be people who live this out and may we be people who promote by our practice bold, faith-filled, consistent prayer. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be able to live what we see in Scripture. May it be plain to us. May we have the desire to be faithful. Give, may we be people that are bold and faithful and consistent in their prayer lives. Give us the desire and the strength and the time to pray more than just before we eat and before we go to bed. But may we be people that pray all the time. May you give us, through your spirit, 
power and strength for all endurance and patience with joy as we travel this road of life that is filled with sickness and sin and suffering. May we be light to the world around us for Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.